this Sunday is a great Sunday. I'm not preaching, so kudos to everybody. Uh, you did great. Uh, instead, this is one of our Sundays where someone we've been training to preach is preaching. Austin Edwards is going to be preaching for us this morning. Yay. Can only go downhill from that moment. No, uh, Austin is so great. I remember meeting Austin. He came to our apartment in Culver City, like I think the first week we had moved here, and we didn't even know what this meant, kind of sacrificial love. He's like, I came from Studio City with this food for you. And we're like, great. There's a studio down the street. We didn't even know. It was like two hours of a slog. You were finishing up the page program at NBC. You were like, the now knowing, it's like, oh my gosh, for perfect strangers, he did that. Like he had to have like prepared to cook weeks and days in advance. And it was very delicious. Barbecue chicken, sweet tea, and macaroni and cheese. But since that moment, uh, Austin has been a beloved friend of mine. He's been a very faithful person in this church, leading a missional community alongside Evie, like, many moons ago, uh, and it's just so wonderful like to have you uh, be preaching and teaching. You have so many gifts that you bring uh, to the entertainment industry, to the people who know you. You're a wonderful friend to many, many people, and yeah, so you can come on up. Now I'm in charge of you walking. So much power, uh, and I'm just really thrilled to have you uh, preach our last Gospel of John sermon as we experience epiphany so it's going to be so awesome excited for the church to hear for those of you who don't know me i'm in the announcement business i mean i have a name and other stuff as well but for the past year i've worked in entertainment publicity and 90 percent of my job is announcing things in order to build anticipation for the next tv show we tease bits and pieces in magazines, social media posts, and then finally, we get it, the trailer. <laughs> Consumers have to see it, they must, because this next TV show, this next sneaker, this next iPhone will change their lives. You know, announcements aren't just limited to companies. Uh, people will literally set the world on fire to let us know that their baby on the way is a girl. But what happens when you realize that the thing you were most looking forward to is just another Kardashian reality show? <laughs> or The Bachelor, but old. <laughs> or when you find out that Ted Lasso season three is kind of like the equivalent of an open goal miss? Like, what do you do when this hope is so misplaced? What happens when your sneakers get scuffed up or when your iPhone XR is like five generations behind like mine is and you don't have the like three lens filter and so you always have triple chins because you can't get that wide angle right? What do you do with that? Uh, what happens when your gender reveal party gives way to a child who grows up to resent you? I say that lovingly as a non-parent, they will grow up to resent you, so hang in there. I love my mom, she's gonna listen to this. She's wonderful, Donna's the best, you guys all know Donna, like, or have heard of her. I love you, mom. Uh, in an article for Elle magazine, Jessica Noah Morgan points out that after announcing a new job opportunity on social media, she felt good. Like, she felt smug, proud, at the top of her game, but it wasn't long before the euphoria wore off. Panic struck and she frantically looked around for other things in her arsenal that she could announce. 
Like, um, maybe I can have like an insane job relocation package. I could announce that. Or this book deal that's coming up. Or maybe I can hurry up and crank out a baby. Uh, welcome to the era of announcement culture. Abby Rawlinson, a London-based therapist, agrees that the social media frenzy produces a never-ending quest for self-worth that has profound psychological effects. She says, Announcement culture fuels our need for validation and puts pressure on people to always be doing something worth announcing. I believe we live in an age where announcements have taken on more than being a formal statement about a fact, an occurrence, or an intention. Announcements have become the currency in which we derive validation, approval, legitimacy, and hope. I believe the desire for these things speak to a problem that we have, I know I have, of shame, of guilt, of exhaustion, and hopelessness. Aren't we tired of that? Wouldn't it be nice if there could just be one thing worth talking about that doesn't get eclipsed by the next thing? If we didn't have to come up with stuff about ourselves, like new stuff about ourselves to talk about over and over and over again. Well, what if the end of announcement culture can begin after one brief announcement from a seemingly crazy man crying out from the woods? The opening pages of the Gospel of John invites us to respond to an announcement that ends all announcements. And this morning, we'll look at just how that can be the case. John invites us to believe a simple declaration that changes everything. He has an announcement that shows us validation, approval, legitimacy, and hope, it doesn't come from within or from a man-made thing that will ultimately disappoint, but from a person who never will. Jesus, we need you. We are a desperate people, and a lot of times we do not acknowledge how desperate we are. We think that we can go it alone, do it on our own, work real hard, be someone interesting enough where other people will care about us. So we keep trying and trying and trying. And honestly, it leads nowhere. And so God, we pray right now that through your word, you will speak to us, that you will remind us who we are in you, that we aren't a hopeless people, that we are a people filled with hope, given a new identity, given a new name through your sacrifice and through your spirit. So God, we pray that you would awaken our hearts, that we would take it in, that we would behold who you are and that we would be changed. In your name, amen. If you will, turn with me to John 1, verses 29 through 37. I'll give you a second. Look at them for me to breathe. I haven't breathed since I've been up here. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. I honestly, like our cohort, working with Sarah and Evie, while you guys are looking up, you know, I'll stall. Um, working with Evie and Sarah and Brad to really dig into this. Um, I never knew how hard preaching would be until Brad gave us a book that was called Eight Hours or Less, and it took like 80 hours or more. Um, but yeah, it's been great to like learn and to see God speak to us through the community that we have together. And so that's what we get to do together right now when we open up God's Word uh, in John 1. John 1, 29 through 37. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is the son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So John had become quite popular and was baptizing so many people that one day the Pharisees came to him and said, are you the Messiah? He was not, and they had to be relieved because, you know, he was wearing, like, camel and, like, eating crickets. So they're like, phew, crisis averted. Uh, So the next day after that is where this text kicks in, and John saw Jesus and told everybody, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the guy that I was telling you about yesterday where I can't even, like, untie his sandals. I saw the Spirit of God come down from heaven and remain on him. He's God's chosen one. And the day after that, John was back at it again with the same old message. So we read that and we probably ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? I'm so glad that you hypothetically asked that. (laughs) Let's take a look. So before this story, there's another story, a story that Jewish listeners of John's announcement would know intimately. The phrase Lamb of God would call to mind the very story of Israel, who they are as a people group, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, their failure to follow God wholeheartedly, and the mercy that they would still receive in spite of their failure. This announcement would remind them that God heard the groaning of his people. His people had become slaves in Egypt, and God remembered his promise. God remembered his promise, so he sent Moses to rescue them. Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. I don't care. I'm not going to let your people go. And so the Lord displays his power by sending plagues back and forth, back and forth. God sends a plague. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let your people go. And then the 10th and final plague ultimately results in the death of the firstborn son for the Egyptians. But the Lord provides a way for the Israelites to escape God's judgment. All they have to do is kill their best lamb and spread its blood on the sides and the tops of the door frames. So God will see the blood and his judgment will pass over them. God allowed a substitute to keep his people from judgment. The blood will be a sign that the lamb died in your place. This announcement would also remind them that there's even a place where the prophet Isaiah is saying that someday somebody is gonna come and by his stripes you will be healed. This man will be despised and rejected. This man will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. This man will be pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins beaten so we could be whole, and whipped so we can be healed. This man will be oppressed. He will be afflicted, yet he will not open his mouth. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And this would be the story that would be retold and rehearsed time and time again. Every year when the Israelites would make their sacrifices of atonement, and every day when they made the morning and evening sacrifices. So this is not merely a metaphor. Like we hear Lamb of God and we're like, okay, cool. Uh, But this would be something that they would hear this announcement of John's and see the murder of an innocent lamb that had been substituted 
that had been taken, taken their place. They would smell the burning aroma. They would taste the lamb on their lips. So you may hear this and immediately think, that's a lot of death. Uh, what's with all this Old Testament language where God seems so brutal and complicated? I'm not alone in this, right? It seems like very brutal, very complicated. You know, like, is God going through his angst phase where he's listening to Death Cab for Cutie while staring at the ceiling? We've all been there. Uh, I was there last year going through my first angst phase. It's intense. Uh, but no, that's not what's happening. Uh, I've wrestled with this question over the past few weeks and keep arriving at the same place. God is not brutal and complicated. Our sin is. Our sin is brutal and complicated. Sin is offensive. It's a cancer. It's a virus that ends in death and it is all around us. No one can escape its end game, not our friends, our family, our city, ourselves. Sin is in the fractured family dynamics you endure at Thanksgiving because sin is in the hearts of distant politicians turned idols. Sin is in the way we relate to those around us as we swing from feelings of inferiority, acting out of wounded pride, to superiority, acting out of our merciless ego. Sin is in the contempt you have for your boss because you've been passed over for a promotion. It's in the frustration with your kids for not meeting your expectations. Send the frustration with your parents for not meeting your expectations. <laughs> Except for Donna, who meets them all. <laughs> Love you, Mom. Uh, sin is in your jealous thoughts. It's in your daily habits, your private browser, how we treat the poor, how we treat our enemies, how we treat those we say we love. It's in greed. It's in gossip. It's in arrogance and self-hatred in the ways that I'm foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Our sin problem is overwhelming. So how do we cope? Option one, we excuse and ignore it. Uh, these are not prescriptive. These aren't like what you should do. This is like some ways that we naturally respond to sin, or at least I do. So we excuse and ignore it. We minimize it. We call it by a different name. If I can make this TV show, or if I can build this rocket, or if my kids will listen to me the first time I ask them to do something, then I will finally prove to myself, my friends, my frenemies, the people from my small town back home, that I matter. That's not sin. In LA, we call that drive. We call it ambition. We say, that's showbiz, baby. We call sins all kinds of things to make us feel better. That's not sin. That's who they are. That's their Enneagram number. Mirella knows that too well. <laughs> the lone laugh crying out from the wilderness. <laughs> ah. So our Enneagram number, uh, their identity, their trauma from growing up in a white middle-class American family. <laughs> I love you, Mom. Um, and by minimizing sin, we get what? We get despair, we get hopelessness, we get more of this crushing weight of unworthiness. So option number two, we take part of it. We already feel guilty, we feel used, so what's one more step down this road? You think I'm bad, I'll show you how bad I can be. But following your desires is making you emptier and emptier and only more fearful of impending doom. So option three, we control it, or at least we try to. 
You know, I'm not really as bad as those people over there. We see that a lot in like the stereotypical church lady, but we also have that in LA with like the Trader Joe's cashier who always gets mad at me for not using the reusable bag. (laughs) Uh, We have this in our office. A lot of times it's disguised as virtue signaling or allyship. Can you believe that what they're doing? I would never, I'm a cool mom. And that works for a little while until you find out that, you know, we're all the same. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that you're bitter and you're alone. So in the book of Romans, like this is terrible news, by the way. I don't know if you feel the weight of it. I do in saying it. Uh, In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages, the payment for sin is death. Because God is holy and righteous, there is a chasm between us. How can a holy God live amongst brutal, complicated, sinful people? Seriously, like that, (laughs) it's overwhelming the need, the desperation that I feel hearing this. How can a holy God live amongst brutal, complicated, sinful people? Like we know this to be true. We see the sin in our own hearts and the sin in our neighbors. And we cannot be in the presence in his presence in our sin-sick state. The shame, the guilt, exhaustion, and hopelessness we experience in the day-to-day ordinariness of life seem to confirm what scripture tells us, that there is something wrong in the world, there's something wrong with us, and no matter how hard we try, we can't get sin out of the world. So Jesus is gifted to us by God. This is great news. Jesus is gifted to us by God. As a lamb, he becomes a sacrificial animal who carries away a condition that is prohibited in God's presence. He carries away our sin. On the cross, we see that he's not out for blood. Instead, he's a bloodied lamb settling the debt that we owe. On the day of atonement, the priest was required to lay both of his hands on the sacrifice and confess over all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. This symbolized how sin would be transferred to the animal who would take responsibility for sin and the penalty for sin's judgment. The killing of the animal shows us that sin earns divine judgment and that forgiveness is secured by substitutional sacrifice. When John announces, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying, now I get it. The reason Isaac was saved, the reason the Israelites' firstborn sons were passed over, the reason we could have the presence of God dwelling in the tabernacle, it was never because this cute little fuzzy little lamb was gonna save us. It was all pointing forward to this. It was because God did not withhold his son from us, his only son. Jesus is the one who would be our substitute. Jesus is the one who would pay everything that we owe. Jesus is the one who would stand in our place. And Jesus is the one who would voluntarily die so we could go free. So after we see that he's the lamb of God sacrificing himself in our place so we could be passed over, we may ask another text, another question of this text, which is what does it mean for Jesus to be the anointed one? Verses 32 through 35 says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, 
The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably like, what the heck? Are you sure about that? You're probably thinking, John, hold up. How can I trust what you just said? You said that you didn't know him, but I know that I know that you know him because you're his cousin. <laughs> it's a little confusing. Um, maybe your mind replays the conversation that Mary had with Elizabeth, where Mary literally is just like, hey girl, what's up? And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and John in utero jumps with joy. So you're like, come on, John, get real. So I think what John is getting at here is that he only knew Jesus in part. He knew him, but he didn't like know him, know him. It's like uh, Mary Jane, when she sees Peter Parker for the first time as Spider-Man, you know? It's like, oh, now I know a whole different part of him exists. It's like the hot jock giving the like, okay, bland nerd makeover, you know? She takes off her glasses and she's actually been gorgeous this whole time. Like I knew her, but I didn't know her, know her. I think that's what John is doing. I think that's what John is saying to us. John is telling us that Israel's long awaited hope, John's family reunion fodder, that Jesus was actually God in flesh. This is actually true. And John had seen it with his own eyes. John wants us to know him, know him as well. And I think that a lot of times we settle for less. John wants us to know that we can be confident that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because Jesus is God's chosen one. This isn't how we've decided to deal with our own sin. This isn't how we've decided to deal with this problem. This is how God has chosen to set things right. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can also be confident because Jesus' sacrifice is given to us and his spirit is given to us. Romans 8, 10 through 11 says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Not only is our sin killed in the death of Jesus, but we are also raised to life in his resurrection and he sends his spirit to live in us. So after we see that Jesus is the lamb of God and that Jesus is the chosen one of God, we may ask, what does that mean for us? Like, where do we go from here? How does beholding this change who we are? Because I think we wanna be changed. I know I do. And I'm very good at projecting, so I think you guys do too. <laughs> the next day, in verses 35 through 37. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I love these verses because the next day, John is going hard in the paint. He's just like back at it again, working on the fundamentals. He's got the same old message because the same old message is still so powerful. 
Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, interrogate, investigate. Like we love a good law and order, don't we? Like investigate, like let's figure it out in 45 minutes, just how great God is. Let's observe, let's view, let's gaze upon, let's contemplate, let's witness, let's experience it for ourselves. Let's regard, let's glimpse it, consider, notice, gawk at, pay attention to the Lamb of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 tells us that when we behold him, we become like him in the same way that like all old married couples start to look alike and sound alike and have the same mannerisms and it's really creepy. But in this case, it's not creepy because we're becoming more and more like Jesus. It's actually kind of cute. <laughs> now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate Behold, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, God's anointed one. Beholding the Lamb changes who we are at our very core. Shame, guilt, exhaustion, and hopelessness disappear once we know that we are deeply loved and deeply known by the God of the universe. When we behold him, we can't keep it to ourselves. In 1857, Charles Spurgeon did a sound check to test the acoustics a day before he preached to a crowd of 23,000 people. Rather than being like, is this thing on or counting to 10, he cried out in a loud voice, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A man was working up in the rafters and he got really freaked out. He just heard this faceless voice crying out, behold, the Lamb of God. And so since he didn't know what was going on, he ran home and immediately put down his tools, went home, found peace by beholding the Lamb of God. I believe that our city, Los Angeles, city of angels, city of dreams, city of stars, according to La La Land, is one of the most evangelistic cities in the world. You have to watch this new TV show. It will change your life. Have you tried this new restaurant? it will change your life. Have you done this new hike? You are gonna hate it, but the view is gonna change your life. We talk about things that we love. It's not that hard. <laughs> this is not a new task for us to add to our checklist, a new job for us to keep busy. This is an invitation from the Spirit of God to participate in his work in the world by telling others what we've experienced. In the book of Acts, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Justin Holcomb explains it like this. Jesus does not command his disciples to perform certain rituals, no more sacrifices, to act according to certain rules or to refrain from certain activities. He promises them that they would testify to his power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Just as a witness in a courtroom is most powerful when she is describing truthfully the events she has seen or heard, the followers of Jesus are given power to speak of the transformation that God works in them. This transformation begins and ends not with our effort, not with our labor, not even with our zeal, but by beholding God's chosen one Jesus, the Lamb of God, day in 
and day out. Legend has it, in 1945, during game four of the World Series at Wrigley Field, a man named William Cianis and his pet goat, Murphy, he brought his pet goat, Murphy. <laughs> he named his pet goat, Murphy. Uh, they were asked to leave the stadium because they were bothering other fans. Who could imagine? Outraged at this slight, William Cianis allegedly sent a telegram to the team owner you were going to lose this World Series and you were never going to win a World Series again because you insulted my goat. After 71 years of losing, Cubs fans started to ask, are we really cursed? Is this true? <laughs> Is a World Series win too far out of reach? But then in 2016, there's this headline, Chicago Cubs win World Series championship with 8-7 victory over Cleveland Indians. Pretty boring, right? <laughs> so yeah, this, uh, this monumental occasion, never before seen in our lifetimes, uh, has the most anticlimactic headline that I think I've ever seen in my life. A hope that was only dreamed of now was a reality. For 71 years, Cubs fans kept saying, maybe this year will be our year, and it is. The incredibly patient fans of the Chicago Cubs built their identity, their validation, approval, and legitimacy on a far-off hope that maybe, just maybe, things would go right. And when it did, they partied like never before. But this headline? Seriously? But we kind of do that same thing, right? Like, we downplay the good news of great joy that's for all people. We're just like, oh, you can try it on for size. Like, Jesus worked for me. Uh, I don't want to impose. I don't want to, like you know, put too much of a claim on your life. We say Jesus has changed my life in a muted whisper where the exclamation point starts to sound more like a question mark. We do that. But this is the greatest hope for our friends, our families, our city, and ourselves. And thankfully, there was a better headline for the Chicago Cubs as well. This is what the actual front page <laughs> looked like. This isn't a bait and switch. Um, I was looking up the PowerPoint last night and I was like, oh, the headline I found was for online only. This is what the actual front page of the paper looks like, <laughs> which is way more exciting. You know, you have the players and open embrace. You have sheer joy, like the widest smile I've ever seen in my life. And in like a font way too big, at last, <laughs> at last, the curse has been lifted. At last, victory is won. And that's true for us. And so that should be true for our response. At last, God can dwell with his people. At last, we are not doomed. At last, we don't need to prove ourselves anymore. At last, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a hope that is not far off. It's here. It's here at last. John 20, 31 says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I believe if we look and truly see that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world, we will not waste time seeking validation, approval, legitimacy, and hope in lesser things. For those of us who are in the faith and those outside, the message is the same. Look and believe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what will happen if we do this? 
We will have life in his name. When I was nine, our family took the first of many cross-country road trips. Uh, my dad was going out for a pastor's co- conference in Colorado, and instead of being like what a normal parent would do and be like, I'm doing a work conference, enjoy, like the kids are staying at home, he's like, let's road trip all the way to California and back from North Carolina. <laughs> so we were on the 405 driving from downtown into the valley late at night. My sisters and I were fast asleep, exhausted from the like 3,000 miles that we had traveled. In a moment that I replay every single time that I drive into the valley, which is where I live in Studio City. Uh, So it's a lot, especially coming from any church event, like three or four times a week sometimes. Um, In a moment that I replay any time that I make this drive, my dad calls out, hurry, look, don't miss this. He didn't want us to miss the beauty of the second largest American city lit up at night. And this is what John is doing with his announcement. John is calling out, Hurry, look, don't miss this. Behold, something far more beautiful and glorious than city lights. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you have accomplished this on our behalf, that all our striving is over, that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus, that at last we are free At last, we have hope. At last, we are not doomed because you have sacrificed yourself for us. You rose to life and you gave us that life and you sent your spirit to dwell within us. And so God, I pray that we would be people of hope, not people of despair. Lord, that we would would be changed by beholding this truth and that we would share it with those that we love, those who are our enemies. That, yeah, we would be changed so much that everyone around us would stop and take note, be like, hmm, the curse has been lifted. Jesus is good. Jesus is in our place. Lord, we pray that this would be true for us, that we would be changed in your name. Amen.